0: You open up your Bibles to Nehemiah, the Old Testament, start a new book today, Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So you have the the um, historical books that starts with Joshua and goes book of Nehemiah. So chapter one, page 421 in my Bible. So, so we're going to study and I believe God's uh, because it's really going to be um, just studying for this and going through this again is been such a great encouragement for me. So Nehemiah chapter 1, find yourself there. And let's pray before we get started. Father, we do thank you that once again we're here. And we know that there's power in the word of God. There's power in the gospel. It's a power for salvation for all who believe. And Lord, we need to be grounded in your word. Because there's a lot of voices that are out there in the world. There's a lot of advice, there's a lot of philosophy, there's trends, there's all these things that can pull us away from the truth of your word and how we are to live. I think about how Peter, that he said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. That is declared to us that everything is given to us that pertains to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. To live wisely. To to know Lord, how it is that we are to live rightly, to be established in truth. So my prayer is that each time that we have the privilege to open up this book, that we would know that this is divine and is given to us for our benefit and our blessing, to grow us in faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So help us to remember to turn ringers off phones, to be established in our chairs, to be attentive for the next few moments. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I want to give you a little bit of background as we enter into Nehemiah chapter 1. And it's not to bore you with some history, but it's going to help you understand the set, uh, the stage for what we're going to be studying, what's taking place here at this time in history of the Old Testament. But a little background concerning Nehemiah that uh, Nehemiah, as you read second King 's second chronicles, those historical books, it ends with Jerusalem being destroyed by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar would come into Judah the, there was the seventy years of captivity. they would ignore the warnings of the prophets with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others that had come on the scene. And we know that the first wave of captivity began in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's defeating the Egyptians. And he gets word that his father has died, so he, Nebuchadnezzar being the son of the king, he needs to get back to Jerusalem quickly to secure the throne. On his way, he stops in Jerusalem, and he takes the choice men of Judah away. That would be Daniel, as well as his, as his friends, to be used in the affairs of the Babylonian government there in the palace. Uh, the three friends being Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. We know them, or most people know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their Babylonian names thrown into the burning fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3. Well, that was the first deportation. And then the second uh, wave of captivity or deportation would take place in 597 B.C. And that's where Ezekiel, most of the people were taken off into captivity. And, And much of the temple vessels that were taken off as well that were in Solomon's temple. As that happened, Ezekiel is there in Babylon. He's prophesying. Daniel's in the palace of Babylon. He's prophesying. And then Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. He's warning the leaders, and particularly that he would warn Zedekiah, do not rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, then Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Well, they didn't listen to Jeremiah. They didn't listen to his warnings to his prophecies, and so Zedekiah would rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in, the king of Babylon, and says, that's it, and he destroyed Jerusalem, and he destroyed Solomon's temple. The 70 years of captivity would end in about 536 B.C. When the Medes and the Persians come in, as prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 44 and 45 specifically, even Cyrus, Cyrus was named by uh, the Lord 200 years before it happened that he would be used of the Lord to come in and and to defeat Babylon even how he would do it. He would divert the flows of the Euphrates River. They walked under the walls and they took the city of Babylon. We know that is also told to us in Daniel chapter 5. Remember that there's Belshazzar, the king of the, the Babylon that he's having this big party with all of his leaders. And as he's toasting to the gods of Babylon, there's a handwriting on the wall, and they bring Daniel out to interpret the handwriting on the wall. And Daniel says that Belshazzar, you're toast. In other words, you're going to be killed this night, and your kingdom's going to be given over to the Medes and the Persians. So Cyrus, the first king, when that happened he would make this decree that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple. And as there was just three deportations or three captivities or waves of captivity uh, that Babylon had against Judah, there was also three waves of, of return. The first one would take place under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was the civil leader and Joshua the high priest, and about 50,000 would return at that time, and that's a small number compared to most of the people who stayed behind. They stayed behind. They had settled uh, there in Babylon as they were dispersed throughout Babylon, throughout Persia, and we know that Jeremiah, when he wrote a letter to the captives, when they first went into captivity, there was the false teachers that were saying to those taken off in the captivity listen not a big deal it's only going to last a few years nebuchadnezzar is going to go down nothing's going to happen to jerusalem we have the temple the temple the temple and jeremiah would write a letter under the instructions of the lord and said to the captives listen you need to settle in you're going to be here for 70 years You need to have children and live peaceably with the people. And that's what happened. So most of them stayed behind. Small remnant, 50,000 come back. um, And as they come back, they're building the temple. It's recorded for us, those who are willing to leave Babylon return, listed there in Ezra chapter 2. When they did return, they pushed the, the rubble aside and they built a sacrificial altar so that they could do sacrifices. And I find that interesting because uh, to tie it in with our end time series that in the tribulation period you know there's going to be a temple the tribulation temple that they're going to do sacrifices and they're going to do offerings we know from daniel chapter 9 verse 27 that the antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering so that's going to begin sometime in the tribulation period but I, you know, reading the book of Ezra, reading um, how they would push the rubble aside and before the temple was even completed, that they begin to do sacrifice and offering. I would not be surprised if that's the pattern that we see in the last days, that before a building's even built, that they start sacrifice and offering. Under the covenant that perhaps that the Antichrist makes with Israel, I don't know. But what was interesting is, I just got done teaching that. We were in Jerusalem with a group of people. We went to the Temple Institute, and they show you how the, the building of the temple's already begun, in the sense of they have all the furnishings ready to go. All the priestly garments, they're training young men to do sacrifice and offering. And they said, we can build an altar and we can start sacrifices before we even have a building. So just kind of a little side note for those of you who like to study such things. So they, what happened was they came back, they, they built the altar, they laid the foundation of the temple, but then the work would stop. And the reason that it stopped is because there were those who opposed that work. They threatened the Jews. Uh, They were ones that did not want to see them succeed. They didn't want to see the Jews build the temple. They did not want to see them rebuild the city or build a wall around the city. They wanted them to live in fear. They wanted them uh, to not be in security. Well, as eventually what would happen is as the work stopped... The people turn inwardly, and they begin to build their own houses. And we know at that time, you have in the Old Testament, you have Zechariah, and you have Haggai. their books of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And Haggai and Zechariah begin to challenge the people, you need to get back to the work of the Lord. It's time to build the house of the Lord and quit just focusing on your own homes. And I love Haggai because Haggai is only two chapters long and says it's time to get back to building the house of the Lord. It's time to get back to the work of the Lord and consider your ways. And I think that's an important message for us. That as we start a new year, that the Lord would say to us, consider your ways. Because there can be a lot of things that can take us away from the priority of living for the Lord or desiring to please the Lord or maybe even being used of the Lord. Consider your ways. You guys are all into yourself, building your panel houses. You forgot about the work of the Lord. And please always remember this, that the Lord, he is building a house today. Do you know that? He's building a living temple, living stones that are being fitted together, as Peter says, in the holy habitation. The kingdom of God coming together, and he wants to use you in that work. And however, he uses you where he's placed you, gifts given to you, opportunities that... That are before you. So here, consider your ways. And then and Zerubbabel would tell Zechariah that, hey, you know, the temple's going to be built. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Finally, finally, the temple gets completed. About 80 years after the first return under Zerubbabel, uh, there was a second return. About 2,000 people under the scribe Ezra. You read about that in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And he's calling the nation that had begun to drift from the Lord back into right relationship with God. And then about 475 B.C., there you have the account of Esther. Esther comes after the book of Nehemiah. But chronologically in time, it happened about 30 years before Nehemiah came on the scene. And Esther, of course, would become the queen. And she was used of the Lord to save God's people, Haman's plot to exterminate the Jews. But here we see that Nehemiah is the third return, and he returns as we read this book, as many of you know, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And this is where the prophet Malachi comes on the scene, the last book of the Old Testament. And he addresses the people there uh, as we read. And then between Malachi, the Old Testament, and between the Gospels is 400 years called The silent years, no prophet on the sea, no revelation, the silent years until you get to actually Luke chapter one, where the angel comes to Zacharias and says that you're going to have a son, John the Baptist. So as we go through this book here, chronologically, we know that it's 445 B.C. Nehemiah is going to come to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. There's no wall around the city. Much of it is still laid in rubble. And what we're going to get insight, some incredible insight, and what makes this study so powerful and so impacting is we're going to see a man who's a very godly man. And we're going to see spiritual leadership that is displayed by Nehemiah that will help us as men, you lead your homes, as anyone who wants to lead in ministry, or for me as a leader in the church. So let's begin to look at this incredible book, this godly individual, Nehemiah, as we read in verse 1 of chapter 1, then the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Cheslev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that hand. uh, um, Hananah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. In verse 3, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. So at the end of of chapter 1, we're going to read that Nehemiah, that he was the, the cupbearer to the king. And the king of the Medes and the Persians at this time is Artaxerxes. The Medes and the Persians were the world-dominating, you know, empire at this time. Now, to be the cupbearer to the king was an incredible position, an incredible responsibility. It was more than Nehemiah would drink the wine before the king did to make sure that it wasn't poison. Because there would be those who would try to take the king out by poisoning his drink and his food. But it was a position of great trust. It would be one that would be a great administrator to make sure that any food or drink would come uh, to the king, would be safe, and it would be prepared according to the way that the king wanted it to be. If he asked for a Coke, you didn't give him a Pepsi, you didn't give him Dr. Pepper. If he wanted his toast lightly brown, you did not make it medium brown or burn it. If he wanted his eggs a certain way, you made it that way. So he had to know how the, the king wanted his food prepared and the servants that would eat with him. And it would be the cupbearer, one, a person of, of intellect, one who was influential and one of good appearance. In other words, you did not dare come before the king in your pajamas or in your workout clothes or just casual dress. You had to come in the proper attire, and you also had to know the protocol of what that was as you stood before the king. So it was a great responsibility. You had to take it very seriously. Great, great, awesome, um, you know, uh, things that pressure that would be on you and you get a little bit of glimpse of this in chapter 2 because Nehemiah, he's going to be before the king. And the king's going to say to, to Nehemiah, your countenance looks sad. He'd never seen Nehemiah in that way. And it tells us that Nehemiah was very much afraid. And the reason that he was afraid was is because the king could say, Nehemiah, you look sad, so you're up to something. You know, you're up to something, I don't trust you, and he could have been put to death. So Nehemiah, he would speak to the king, but he was one that was trusted by the king. So he has a position of great importance. And here, as we read, as we opened up Nehemiah, it's in the time he's in Shushan, which is the winter palace of the king. It's the month of Cheslev which would be the time, about this time of the year, be December. Uh, Keep in mind that Nehemiah had, you know, um, never been to Jerusalem. He was born in Persia. His name means Jehovah gives comfort. He meets his brother Hanani. Uh, We know it's his brother because chapter 7, verse 2 tells us, which means God is grace. So no doubt I think that he grew up in a godly home, and his brother returned from being in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asked, "How is it going? How is it going for those in Jerusalem?" And he is told that Jerusalem was still in rubble. there's no wall around the city, there's no gates. there's great distress among the people. And I'm sure, as I've already mentioned, that they lived in fear because in ancient times, to to have a wall around the city and to have gates was very important for their protection. For their security, if there was any threat against them, they could close those gates and seal it and the people would be protected inside the walls. And as I mentioned, that there are the enemies of the Jews that we're going to see in this book and how they would come against them and how they would threaten them and how they would intimidate them to where they were afraid to build a wall. Uh, They thought the task was too great, and they would be very vulnerable to the enemies around them that would come against them. And that's the way the enemy wanted them to be. That's the way the enemy wants us to be. He wants us to move ahead in in fear and intimidation, and and you can't do this because he's one that will attack us in the same way, and we're going to get great insight to how the enemy comes against us in that way. So as we go through this book, we'll see that, and we're also going to see clearly the godly character of Nehemiah, how he was a godly leader, how he would move out not in fear but under the fear of the Lord, and we will see he was sensitive to the people. He was a man of prayer. He fasted. He knew God's word. He encouraged the people. He was humbled and committed to the call of God given to him, even in the most difficult of times. And here in verse 2 as we read it, one of the godly characteristics comes out of Nehemiah and it's simply this. He cared. He cared. He cared enough to ask, hey, how are the brethren in Jerusalem? How is the struggling remnant of people living hundreds of miles away in a place that he had never been to, lying in a pile of rubble? Nehemiah asked because he had a caring heart. He had a tender heart. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 5, the Lord speaks through the prophet and says, For who will have pity on you, Jerusalem, or who will bemoan you, or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? Well, that's fulfilled by Nehemiah. God found a man, Nehemiah, who had a tender heart, even though he was a man of great influence and importance in the world's eyes. Even though he would be very secure, he would be successful, it wasn't his fault that the Jews found themselves in captivity, that Jerusalem was destroyed. It wasn't his fault that the people didn't build the wall around Jerusalem. But he cared enough to ask, how is it that the people are doing? And sometimes people... We can, all of us, we don't take the time to ask others, how are you? How's your family? How are you today? To show that we really do care. That we're concerned for others. And sometimes we don't do it for various reasons. I hope it isn't for this reason, that we're just so focused on ourselves. That we just talk about ourselves and it's always about me and We're not really concerned about others. Sometimes we don't ask how people are doing that are linked to us in our lives because we're in such a rush. We live in a rush, busy, in a hurry kind of world, and I can be guilty of that. So I apologize in advance that if I'm coming down the hall and I'm kind of tunnel vision because I'm trying to get service started, that sometimes I'll walk by people and and I didn't stop to say hello, and I try to be sensitive to that and not do that. But we get in a hurry, don't we? we? We got places to go. We need to get moving. Sometimes we don't ask how people are doing because we're just overburdened with problems and difficulties and hurts and challenges that have come into our lives. But oftentimes, sometimes, we don't ask how somebody is doing because we may feel obligated. Obligated to get involved, obligated to help. I, I don't want to ask because I just don't want to know. I don't want to feel obligated or guilty to get involved. But we learn from this man before us. He wanted to know how his brethren were doing, even though the answer was painful. And when we care enough to ask that person how they're doing or ask about a situation, it does not mean that God automatically is going to have you solve the situation or get involved directly. It doesn't mean that. He may. But there are things that we can't do. And we can't give words of encouragement. We can pray for them. We can give a verse, a promise of the Lord that will bring comfort to them. That we can just listen to them. A lot of times people just want somebody to, to, to listen to them. And over the years I have learned that there are those that they're burdened with things and they're overwhelmed and they have a lot of problems. And if I can say... I'm so sorry for your pain and what you're going through. That means a lot to them. So we can ask people, how are you? How's your family? How are you doing? And when we do that, they know that we care. We care enough to take the time to ask the people that are linked to us in our lives. How are you doing today? That means you, husband. When you come home from work, is it just the boss this and the guys this and I'm tired of that and complain, complain, murmur, murmur all through dinner and all of this? Any of us can do that. But rather than saying to our spouse, How was your day today? You know, how are you doing today? I was praying for you today. Parents to your kids. How are you doing today? Rather than your kids locking themselves in their room and you're down on the computer or whatever. And there's not a lot of words that are spoken. But to take the time to say, I, I want to know how you're doing. How's this situation? How's this class? How's, how th- is this going on? To really engage in people and to ask them. To show them that you do care. Now in this situation, we see that God is going to use Nehemiah in this problem. That there's no wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asking this question, Listen. It would change his life. This is a turning point where God would use a cupbearer. He doesn't use an engineer. He doesn't use a masonry. He doesn't use a construction worker. He uses a cupbearer to build a wall. And I like what the late Warren Worsby says that he wrote on this. He said, like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. In one day... By asking this one question, Nehemiah's life changed. It changed to where he was used to the Lord in a great way. In one day, Joseph, that man of God in the book of Genesis, was thrown into prison in the dungeon unjustly, unfairly. For years, for about 12 years, he's there. And he would be brought out of the dungeon to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And he went from prisoner to prime minister. It was on one day that Moses, herding sheep on the backside of the desert, like he had done for 40 years, and he saw a great sight, a burning bush, and he said, I'm going to go and see what this sight is, and God would call him to free the children of Israel out of Egypt. David, that young shepherd boy, was out with the sheep when Samuel would show up at the house of Jesse to anoint the new king of Israel. It was Peter after a failed night of fishing that the Lord said, Peter, cast your nets on this side of the boat. And there was a great haul. And then the Lord turned to Peter and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It was Paul on that day when he's on his way to Damascus that he met the Lord and he became the great apostle that we all know. You never know what God might have in store for you later today, tomorrow, this week, this year. So I want to encourage you keep your heart open to how God wants to use you and to guide you. And Nehemiah here asking a question because he cared enough. We see his reaction as we read in verse 4. That So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, remember in our recent study as we went through the book of Colossians in chapter 2 or chapter 3, verse 2, we're told as Christians to put on tender mercies or tender compassion. And Nehemiah is showing tender compassion here. He's weeping over Jerusalem uh, condition, his brethren that are there in great distress. It reminds me of the ultimate example of that, Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, who looked at the multitudes as, as sheep without a shepherd, weary and scattered. And he had compassion for them. He was moved. He, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the way that Jesus was moved in that is that he would heal the people. He brought great healing to them. But ultimately, he went to the cross for them. Just as he has compassion for you and for me. His compassion fails nigh. His mercies are new every morning. Amen. And he went to the cross to die for you and for me. So that uh, word compassion means being moved to do something about it. And as we see here, he's moved. This is on his heart. And we can be moved as we pray and seek God. Uh, when he touches our hearts. Uh, when he pierces our hearts and keeps speaking to us in that still small voice. And I want to remind us that prayer and fasting, they do go together. Seeking the Lord. Is of priority and importance because before God works through us, He must work in us. We know that He sought the Lord for four months, and then we're going to see the prayer of Nehemiah. But I, I want to remind you of this, and I was thinking about this uh, at the end of the last service. But this time of the year, we hear a lot about life coaches, financial coaches, health coaches. I'm not putting that down. How to be successful in life, the the best potential, that's the word that's you, the potential view in this area financially and career coaches and all of this, you will never, never listen. Reach your full potential if you're just living for the world. You are creative for the Lord and he wants to use you And you will realize your full potential and fulfillment and satisfaction and success in the best sense of the word. When you just yield to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you have for me? Lord, guide me and direct me. Put it on my heart. Lord, move me and speak to me. But none of us will reach our full potential or satisfaction, fulfillment or joy. If we're living for the world and just doing our own thing. But we will be successful as we're looking to him. As we're open to his leading. Being sensitive, having a tender heart. So the prayer of Nehemiah, let's read it. It's going to take us to the end of the chapter in verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse eight Remember I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest parts of heavens, yet I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to this place, which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants, and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. And then verse eleven. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Even though Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, he still identifies with his people. He says, great and awesome God. He uses that term. In chapter 4, he'll encourage the people. Remember this, that God is great and awesome. And I want to remind you of this in this new year that we're in, that God is great and he's awesome. He's a great God. He is awesome. And as Nehemiah continues to pray, he says, you keep your covenant. In other words, your word is true, Lord. You keep your word, your promises, your promises. And, Lord, may your ear be attentive, verse 6, to hear your servant. As you go to the Lord in humility of heart, his ear is attentive to you. There's a complete dependency here Nehemiah has on the Lord. To be an effective leader in your home, in ministry, we need to be completely dependent upon the Lord. Lord, I come in that humility. I know that you are great and awesome. Lord, your word is true for me. And Lord, be attentive as I give this to you and cast my cares upon you. And then he says we have sin." in verses 6 and 7. I have sinned. Again, a humility of confessing their sins, identifying with this people. He doesn't say, well, they sinned. They messed up. You know, Jerusalem's now destroyed. They're in big, you know, trouble. They've been, you know, uh, haven't built the wall. So I guess I'm going to have to go and get them out of this situation and fix it. No, he says... Lord, we've sinned. Lord, I've sinned. There's a humility and an honesty, no excuses, no explaining away. We need to be humble before God to bring our hearts to him, even as David would say, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way, Lord, in me and confess it to him because he sees it. And Nehemiah is looking for God's promise, verse eight, when he says, remember the word you commanded. It isn't that God forgot, but it's a way to express that, Lord, you will keep good on your word because his word is true. Remember when we talked about the return of the Lord, that his name is true and faithful, and and, and it is. He is true and he's faithful to his word. And in verse 11, Nehemiah's prayer here is, I'm ready to be used, Lord, if you desire to use me. Again, concerning his dependency and humility to God, He's the cupbearer to the king. It's an honor position. He doesn't trust in that. But Lord, I want to prosper and grant me mercy. He isn't just praying, Lord, you need to do something about this and make this better. Or you better find somebody to help. But Lord, if you want, prosper me. In other words, use me to help, to be a benefit and a blessing to others. I think that as we pray to God, sometimes people say, Lord, uh, I don't want to get too serious about following after you. I don't want to pray about this because if I get too serious about the Lord, then you're going to make me do something I don't want to do. And sometimes the commandments are given that we're told to do something that isn't easy or it's hard. But he is going to be in it and he's going to bless you and he's going to encourage you and strengthen you. But sometimes it's like, Lord, I I don't want to pray about this. I'm afraid if I follow you too closely or get too serious about you, you're going to want me to be a missionary in Africa. And I don't want to do that. I don't like bugs and snakes and all of this. Listen, if he ever calls you to be a missionary in Africa, he will put it on your heart. He'll let you know. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways of knowledge. Him and He will direct your paths. That we know that the psalmist writes that what we are to do is that we are to just trust Him and knowing that as we delight in Him, He'll give us the desires of His heart. He'll give us the desires of our hearts. His desires will line up with, with, our desires will line up with His desire. He'll speak to you. He'll minister to you. He'll prompt you. So don't be afraid to ask what God has for you because he wants the very best for you. And as we go to him, being honest before him, saying, Lord, how is it that you want to use me in this situation or with this person or moving forward in this new year? Delight yourself in the Lord. Again, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And Lord, speak to my heart and know that you have the very best and you want to use me, however that might mean. And just trust him. Have a tender heart as we look to the people around us to be used of him in a wonderful way that will benefit others and bless others. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for, you know, this study here. And we see a man here who cared. His whole life was changed by just asking that question. How are you? How are things going? And, Lord as we just care about others and so we minister to others, may we take the time to do that and then seek you. How we might get involved, how we might pray for somebody, minister to them, but we don't have to be afraid. Just being led by the Holy Spirit, by you, whether we get involved or not or whatever you have for us, knowing that your word is true and you're true and To us, that we delight ourselves in you. You'll give us the desires of our hearts, but our desires will line up with you. So, Lord, I just pray that this year that we would just be open, more sensitive to people as we see them, our families, co-workers, friends. Just take the time to care and minister and give words of encouragement and to help in the ways that you lead us and I thank you that Jesus moved with compassion went to a cross for us and I do want to pray for anyone who is here that you're not a believer you're listening online that you haven't made a commitment to Christ that the invitation is for you to come because he was moved with compassion to go to a cross That he went to the cross to die for you. And for your sins. To make atonement for your sins. And then he rose again and he's alive. And today is the day of salvation for you to come to him and yield to him. And call out to him. For forgiveness of sin and salvation and right relationship with the Father. And you can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I do come. I confess that I am a sinner. I humble myself. And ask that you forgive me of my sins. I know you died on the cross for me. And you rose again in your life. And I ask that you'd be my Lord and Savior in this new year. I thank you for this new beginning, making me a new person. To know you and walk with you all the days of my life. So, Lord, I thank you for the work that you want to do in our lives. May we keep you the priority, knowing that that we will never reach our full potential, what you have for us, until we just go to you and are sensitive to your leading, seeking you, and having you be the priority of our lives, every day of our lives. Bless everyone here as we now go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? we do have a prayer team to pray with you if you need prayer for anything we want to pray for you and bless you in that way be open to what the Lord how he wants to use you this year how he wants to to move you and direct you it was 28 years ago that I came to Sue and said the Lord's telling us to move to Greeley it didn't make any sense we didn't know anybody here never went to church planning class, you know, seminary. We loaded up two small kids and we came up because we just had a desire and a heart for for this city. And we came up and went to the old Hume Woods store. Some of you remember that. Bought a stool. Went to Greeley Music store and bought a cheap $200 guitar and had a Bible. That's how we started. We just trusted the Lord in this venture of faith. Listen, he has a venture of faith for you. Trust him. Let him lead you. And you will see that he will do amazing things with your life. It won't always be easy. But don't miss out on the true potential that he has for you. Amen? Okay. We're going to keep looking at Nehemiah. We're going to close in song. And again, if you need prayer or anybody made a decision for the Lord, please come forward. We want to pray for you. God bless you.